What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Dapper Villains Podcast. I'm Dana Blue, and as always, joined by my co-host, the brown and beautiful Jay Suchdave. Jay, what's going on, brother? <laughs> hey, we, we have another brown and beautiful soul today uh, with us, uh, Angel Ramos, so I'm very excited for today's guest. Brown we do. beautiful (laughs) let's get into it angel man thank you for taking the time to join us oh thanks for having me man i appreciate it i know it's late over there in new york city early here in bangkok so glad we could make the times work for sure thank you man i appreciate you having me so for anyone who doesn't happen to know who you are what what you do could you just give us a quick background yes so i'm the creative director of 18th amendment formerly angel bespoke and you know we're based out of New York City. We are a made-to-measure brand with a now a digital platform where we uh, also do made-to-order. Obviously, uh, this can- kind of pandemic has kind of really inspired us to to go kind of digital first, which has worked out really well. So, uh, but yeah, we're a made-to-measure menswear brand based out of New York City. Nice. And so, 18th Amendment is, if I'm not mistaken, has to do with prohibition. It, it is the actual, it is the amendment that abolished the sale of alcohol and obviously started the prohibition. We are s- certainly not for uh, abolishment of any type of alcohol. <laughs> good man, <laughs> if good anything, man. we are quite the opposite. But, you know, we, we, you know, I've always been inspired by, by this, uh, the 1920s and 30s and, and the dress attire of this era. And, um, you know, when we named the brand 18th Amendment, it was really kind of, you know, paying homage and, and inspiration to this kind of like speakeasy in uh, prohibition era uh, of dress and the kind of like the old America of those, those days. So very much more the time than the, the act itself. Sure. Right. Correct. That's an interesting way to, to think about it too, because that, that was that whole amendment, right? The whole idea of prohibition, the uh, abolishment of alcohol sales in the United States created this entire subculture of, like you said, speakeasies and, you know, underground sort of nightlife that also inspired its own form of dress, I guess. Right. I mean, look, look, I always actually like to mention and point out that although it was a time where alcohol, the sale of alcohol was abolished, and I'm not trying to kind of glorify crime that was done, but it did allow specific people, uh, specific gangsters such as Al Capone and Lucky Luciano it allowed them to be creative and, and, and very entrepreneurial in those times, albeit obviously illegal but it allowed them to kind of like think outside of the box and create a world and create a, a whole business and where they can still operate and, and still create something financially, you know, beneficial for them during this time. So they saw an opportunity. They saw a demand that needed to be filled regardless of whether it was wrong or right. And I think the rebellion spirit of that, I really appreciate. I think the entrepreneurial spirit of that, of, of course, uh, I certainly appreciate um, but I always like to kind of preference that obviously we're not kind of glorifying what, what was done in terms of like the crime and all that stuff and the murder. As far as the timeline, that era, what inspiration, what aspects of the dress there do you take inspiration from in your brand now? So I'll, I'll back up a little bit. I think everyone in terms of aesthetically and in style goes through their ebbs and flows of like getting to where they want to be. You know, it, it's ever changing. I was really into the kind of the slimmer clothing and, and much more trim. Um, and so as I progressed and kind of understood the, the I guess, the history of, of dress and the history of tailoring more, I started to kind of lend myself more toward this style of, of clothing, which is kind of like the fullness, more drape. And I'm not a small guy. You know, um, when I started in this business, I was much, I would say much smaller. I was probably like 190 pounds. 
and you know, I do exercise, I cycle, I, you know, I'm pretty active. So I'm now 225, uh, 6'2", 220. So as I kind of, you know, matured in the business, matured in terms of tailoring, I kind of realized what is more appropriate dress attire and drape and portions for someone my size where you don't look costumey, you don't look like, you know, like you're wearing, you know, you're trying to emulate someone from the 1920s and 30s, but you are dressing towards your body. And it's helped me um, navigate my clients in the right direction and kind of steering them in the right direction in terms of dressing them because it goes for me being able to dress someone who's uh, smaller in terms of proportions and obviously someone who's bigger. And so in answering your question, you know, what inspires us about this period in terms of dress is the the fullness of it, the the drape of, of this attire, you know, in those days, you know, whether it was summer or winter, you know, the preferred type of fabric and cloth that people were wearing were heavier fabrics. And, I, and I've come to learn, the more and more I learn about fabric is the heavier the fabric, the more girthier and body and weight the fabric has, although sometimes it might not be the most luxurious feeling or, you know, on the hand or comfortable. I think it's comfortable, but most people don't think it's comfortable. It does drape and perform better as opposed to something that's extremely papery and super hot, like, you know, high thread count, super 240s. And you feel like you're, you know, like this kind of billionaire, but you, by 12 o'clock, you're like a wrinkled accordion. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very true. And I, I'm a fan of heavy fabric myself. Also, it's, it's easier to work with. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, but you, you touched on, you know, dressing for your body type, you know, which is something that Jay and I were just discussing the other day with another guest specifically, you know, you're a small guy, you know, 6'1", 220, uh, 6'2", 220. I'm, I'm 6'1", 265. So, you know, I'm, I'm in that petite range as well. But I, I was talking <laughs> about, you know, I, I really love the look of uh, very skinny lapels. I can just never, ever wear them because I have like a 56-inch chest. Wow. Yeah. Here's the beauty of this world of tailoring is that we all have the the right and the liberty to kind of like and dislike anything we like, you know, anything that's out there. That's why style is style. Style is your own. I personally am not a big fan of smaller lapels for two reasons. One, I think everything is proportional. I think, you know, a lapel that I would wear is probably not something I would put on someone who's, you know, six feet, 145 pounds, you know, because they would obviously overwhelm his, his frame as opposed to, I would have put someone like yourself, myself, or even, even Jay in a two and a half inch lapel because the majority of all you're going to see when you're, someone's looking at you is literally all jacket. Yeah, exactly. That's why I can't wear them. Yeah, there won't be much of a balance. And so, look, you know, tailoring is, tailoring is all about balance just like life is. You know, yeah. it, it's how much it works out. You know, like I said, I love the look of it, but it, it only looks good on a guy who's like 145 pounds, 6'6". You know, right. that's when the skinny lapel looks good. On me, it looks like, hey, is there something on the edge of your jacket? It looks like there's a little fold of fabric there or something. Right, right, right. And look, one of my favorite brands, if not, I mean, I would say like top three easily is Tom Brown. And Tom Brown's not himself is not a small guy, but he pulls off much thinner and petite lapel than you would say someone like Tom Ford, you know? Yeah, for sure. No, I would definitely agree with that. It's a unique look all its own, right? Totally. So how'd you get your start with uh, 18th Amendment? Like how do you, in the tailoring space, what, what brought you into that industry? Uh, so a lot of people don't know this. But I actually grew up in the, in the industry. My mother was a seamstress and a dressmaker, oh, wow. um, as well as a baker. And so her kind of little shtick or kind of hustle when I was younger was that she would offer rides to customize their wedding dress and at the same time uh, make their wedding cakes. 
And so I grew up in a very, very kind of low income community in Brooklyn. You know, my parents came from Puerto Rico with essentially no education. My dad dropped out of school when he was in sixth grade. And so all I saw was obviously my dad hustle and my mom have this kind of like creative business. And although it was intriguing and I grew up in the business and kind of being dragged around New York City to every fabric store there is, at the same time, I hated it because growing up, I associated this business and, and the fact that she was making me clothes with poverty. And, and so I could never get anything that my friends had or, you know, any type of like, you know, I mean, honestly, she made me my book bag. She, if I wanted a hat, she'd make it for me pants, jacket, everything. And, and so, you know, now in hindsight, I can, as a creative, I can be like, man, it's incredible. Cause I personally don't, I, unless I'm buying something vintage in terms of tailoring, I make it all for myself. And so, you know, in her mind, she was like, I can make that for you. I'll just make it. And so that's where technically, I guess it got started. It was kind of in my blood there. And then as I got out of college, you know, I started working for a real estate firm. This is probably back in 2003. And I mean, I dressed horrible. And so, you know, I, I went in, I had just came out of college and obviously I didn't know anything about this, this world or even, you know, elegant dressing. And I walked in, I think with like a, a horrible, so I don't even know what brand it was. I, I might've bought it at like whatever uh, menswear big and tall was at that time. And the two guys, two or three guys that were working on my floor were like, dude, you dress horrible. You look terrible. Like you can't like work here, dress like that. And, you know, I'm an athlete. Yeah, I went to school. I played college. I played minor league baseball. And, and you know, I don't get yeah, offended easily or, you know, and so I took it as a challenge. And it really pissed me off that they were ridiculing me as opposed to like, you know, it kind of made me sad or whatever. And so rather than making me sad, I like got really pissed. And it was a challenge. And it was right about the same time where uh, Scott Schumann was had kind of was coming on the scene with uh, the sartorialist. Honestly, the sartorialist, it helped me tremendously because it, it inspired me to understand that there were men out there uh, walking the streets of New York, obviously walking the streets of Europe that cared about their appearance so much that like they, they cared about every detail in terms of tailoring and, and, and their suiting and, and just how they put the, themselves together. And um, I kind of got obsessed with following his website and following his blog and and that's kind of where it kind of, I would say in 2003, that the love started. I've moved around in the last 10, 15 years quite a bit. And in every city that I've kind of passed through, there's been a piece of my style that I've grabbed from and taken. So, you know, I came back to New York from college in 2003. I was here for about a year and a half, moved to Charleston for two years, Charleston, South Carolina. That's where I kind of got this kind of like, you know, Southern good old boy, ideology of like sartorialism of like seersuckers and like uh, buck shoes and uh, you know white buck shoes and all that stuff and and then you know I was there for two years moved over to Atlanta Atlanta was where I think that I cultivated a lot of this um, what I know today and my mentors were there and Atlanta was really the home of like and it, the years that I was there and this is in 2005 to 2010 was like the years of the true dandies and one of my mentors that, that I've sat with a lot, his name is Leonard Gresham. And he is a historian. The guy knows everything. The guy's brilliant. I mean, truly brilliant. And I used to sit with him for hours while he essentially helped me understand the vernacular of, of this world and the whys, the why nots. And then my buddy Quasi, who used to be a big uh, salesman at, uh, at 
Ralph Lauren in Atlanta really took me under his wing and kind of like gave me a lane in Atlanta to kind of flourish. And then from there, I went to Miami, which technically speaking, wasn't really anything for me like sartorially, but it's, it's where I started my company. And, you know, it's where I got to business because while I was in Atlanta, I was not in the business. I was actually working in real estate with Sotheby's. And then thankfully I won the Esquire Best Dressed Real Man of America Award in 2010. And that was on the transition, on me transitioning away from Atlanta, moving to Miami. And so while I lived in Miami, I applied for these three, two or three major menswear like brands. And I applied literally several times. I'm like desperate because I was really like obsessed with this industry. I was trying to get out of real estate and none of them would give me, and I get it. None of them would give me an opportunity because I didn't have any experience. And one of them, which I, I think to this day, I never say his name because I never want to put him in a bad position. But he, you know, I applied for a job with him and he said, look, man, you're, you're just not a, you're not our look and you're not a good fit for us. And again, rather than being like, oh my gosh, we're like, what do you mean by that? Like, how, how dare you? Like, it, it really made me think like, huh, what did, what did he mean by that? And it took me about two years to understand that what it, he was so convicted and understood his brand and the world that he built so well that when he looked at me, he said that, you know, you're not, you're, your aesthetic, your physique isn't a part of our world. It, was he wrong by saying that? For me, he wasn't. I'm pretty sure most people would be pissed that he said that, but it helped me understand that, man, you just don't want to start a company and be a service. You need to start a brand and you need to create a world so that you are, you, you are building a conviction in your aesthetic. You are building a world that's so convicted that you understand who belongs in it and who doesn't and who's going to be a client and who's just not a good fit. You know what I'm saying? And so I, I'm very thankful that, you know, out of everyone who's turned me down, that he turned me down with, with words that have carried and have held so much weight for me and have helped me, you know, as I've been kind of, you know, building my own business for the last past 10 years, essentially. Nice. And so from Miami, you ended up back in New York or was there anywhere in between? Yeah. So I was in Miami for, for four years, which look, Miami is obviously a really cool place to live. Um, a lot of great ass in Miami. <laughs> it's, it, it is, it is there, there, there's a lot of vices there. Yeah. Um, and you know, <laughs> anyway. A lot of Cubans in general. <laughs> they're, they're Cuban. All right, now, no, now I'm, I'm back sorry. on the podcast. <laughs> no, look, you know, I, I love Miami just because one, being a Latin, I, I, I think being, you know, having lived in Miami and, and myself being able to see other Latin people so extremely successful in Miami. I mean, honestly, like I've lived in New York for so many years. There is no other place in, in America where that I've seen where there's so many Latin people in one area that are so successful. New York, there's obviously probably Latin people that are, there's tons of Latin people that are successful. Miami, because it's so smaller than New York, it was, it was crazy. And it, it was a good season there. Living there was fun. Living there was extremely like the quality of life there was incredible. Uh, but I knew that in terms of building this brand and, and, and being taken seriously, I needed to move the brand back to New York to kind of restructure, re-note, re, re you know, kind of essentially be known as a New York brand. And then once we grew, look, I, I, I always say in 10 years from now, we can be based out of anywhere, you know, logistics and all, everything we do internally, but we needed to build that presence back in New York, especially for me being a New York guy and, and, and being born and raised in Brooklyn. 
that living in Miami was a place where the industry didn't take me that seriously. Although I, I grew a lot, but the, and, and you know, the, the internal industry didn't take me that seriously because you're like, you're just a Miami guy. Would you also say like the clientele in Miami wouldn't get your products or it's not? Yeah. So that? here's the thing is the clientele in Miami is very, it's very finicky because, you know, Miami is not a city that lends itself to wanting to be tailored all the time because it's so hot. So there's three things that you can be the coolest guy in Miami with, you know, as long as you get an amazing watch, an incredible car. And that's it. I mean, if you have a cool condo or a house, that's all that people care about because most guys in Miami, their attire is either jeans and a t-shirt and a pair of Todd's or they're in swim trunks and a, and a t-shirt. Like it, it is a tropical city. You know what I'm saying? So they are, they are extremely elegant guys in Miami that are elegant for Miami standards in terms of like they're wearing beautiful blazers and a pair of jeans. But no one is dressing in Miami these days as they were like, let's say the 20s and 30s where Miami had guys in beautiful suits and all fully adorned and three-piece suits that were even linen. They don't dress like that these days because it is definitely not part of the culture there. So although I, I had several clients in Miami, I find myself when I lived in Miami, essentially working out of Miami and traveling out a lot to get business and then coming back. So Bangkok, where Jay and I live, is, is a, obviously a very hot city, very humid, but the culture isn't, and it's full of vices. Jay knows he just, he walked in his house two minutes ago from the brothel before we started. Uh, but you know, the, uh, the culture is much more dressed than it is in Miami, even though they're com comparable climates. Interesting. Is it because of the, the business aspect of Bangkok? Yeah. 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 So keep yeah, in mind, I mean, Bangkok is probably like 10 New Yorks. Like if you condense 10 New Yorks, right. It, that's Bangkok. It, it's an amazing city and there's all this craziness, but you also go from air conditioned place to air conditioned place to air conditioned place here. So even yeah. on the train, it's like crazy AC. You go to a mall, it's super cold. Yeah, I wish it was like that here in the summer and it's not. <laughs> like people are equipped for the heat here. So, so like if your lifestyle is that you have to wear a jacket, you know how to navigate without having to deal with the heat. Yeah, because right. it is a city. So when you were in Miami, uh, what kind of suits were you selling? You know, when I when I was in Miami, my style was extremely. I mean, I guess in terms of color and palette, it would be Miami. But I was just look. I mean, I wore a lot of loud, like not loud, but I wore a lot of like pastel colors. So my a lot of my blazers were like soft pinks and oranges and like yeah. So I wore a lot of off white bottoms like off-white trousers off-white jeans you know i mean not off-white jeans but white jeans i wore pretty much like linen shirts barely wore a tie I, I don't even think i wore a suit at all in miami that was the vibe and it worked for me there you know but however here's the thing is if you're a a tailor from puerto rico that is goes to new york for a trunk show you know most puerto rican tailors or most like, you know, tailors from like Miami would be very Miami, New York. I was able to adapt because again, I knew more about dress. So when I would come to New York, you know, I wasn't coming to New York in the winter with a pink jacket and like off-white trousers. Like, you know, I, I knew I had the, the, the wardrobe to appropriately dress for New York. So uh, I was able to kind of gain a lot of New York clients and clients, you know, a lot of states around the country because like, it's quite frankly, if, I, if I'm going to San Francisco, which is a beautiful uh, suiting city as, as well as DC, 
Uh, if you're going to these cities and you're coming in with a pink jacket, uh, a white linen shirt and like white jeans and like no one's going to take you seriously because that's not the, that's not the culture there. It's not the vibe. And so, yeah, it's not the vibe there. And so um, I was able to kind of like, you know, understand how to dress in, in, in different environments and, and it worked out. Yeah. So, I mean, but look, my, I started in Miami with a company, with a menswear company that actually gave me a shot. My buddy owned the company, my buddy, David Schottenstein. And the company at that time was called Astro and Black. And I knew him personally in Miami. In Miami. I said, look, man, I'm, I'm trying to get into this menswear business. And it was a perfect time. I had just won Esquire's Best Dressed Man. And, and he's like, look, I think it'd be a great fit. We can leverage the fact that we just hired Esquire's Best Dressed Man. And, and I'm going to give you every opportunity to grow in this industry uh, within us. And I worked there for a year and, and really learned the business, the manufacturing business from him really well enough to like, you know, after a year he made his exit out of the company and I was really loyal to him after he made his exit out of the company. He kind of gave me the green light to kind of, or the blessing to say, Hey, you're on your own now. And I, I left after a year and, uh, and I started angel bespoke in 2011 or 12. Nice. So I, one of the things I, I find interesting about Miami and like you, you talked about, like everyone's always sweating. I don't know if you remember the show Dexter. I do not. So Dexter was a this serial killer show. It took place in Miami, but in like the guy, the main character was a forensics uh, guy, but he was also a serial killer. But every time they're outside, every character would just be soaked in sweat. Like, like their back mm -hmm. would be sweaty. Their pits would be sweaty. And that's just yeah. how I always envision Miami. <laughs> it's a very linen weather. Yeah, very linen. It's very, it's very. So we had a chance to hang out in New York quite a few times. And I asked him this question because it was right at the time where he was transitioning from Angel Bespoke to 18 Amendment to become a brand. And we were talking about is custom scalable? How do you scale? What's the, what's, you know, what's the possibility of scaling? And uh, it was a pretty big decision at that time to change because everybody right. knew you as Angel Bespoke. And now you have a, a personal account as well. But uh, at that time, uh, what was the decision? And why did you make that decision to change to 18 Amendment? Yeah. So look, after I think it was about five years of having Angel Bespoke or six years, things were going well. And it, it, it was, we wanted, my business partner and I, who've been friends for 20 years, uh, we, we met each other in, in college back, you know, when we were 18 years old, we wanted to take this to the next level. And Again, not that we couldn't take Angel Bespoke to the next level, but I wanted to create a brand that kind of stretched globally. So it salespeople around the country in, in the United States of America. And, and then we, you know, we also had salespeople in like, let's say Europe and, and Asia. And I wanted to kind of really grow this globally because again, I had worked with Sotheby's for seven years prior to this, uh, prior to this business. And, and so everything that I knew from working with Sotheby's and, and, and building a brand, it was, it was the, what was kind of essentially ingrained into me for the last seven years was build a global brand, build a global, uh, a global presence. And, and so not once when I was doing this clothing thing, I was thinking like, you know, New York or just Miami, I was thinking like world. And so with that vision in mind, you know, I was like, look, we need to create a brand that we can, we can build a team, we can build products around that we can eventually grow it, you know, beyond just the menswear world, which, you know, let's, you know, if we want to speak frank, you know, the, the suiting industry is a slowly dying industry that, you know, I think tailoring is huge and it's still, it's still a, a great product, but less and less people are getting dressed. 
And so if you're creating a proper global brand, and you can start putting your name on, on things that a, a gentlemen associate themselves with, let's say fragrance or lifestyle stuff, and you're creating a lifestyle brand, then you can start putting your name on, on, on lifestyle things. Then you're able to sell things beyond just a jacket and a tie and like a pocket square. And, and if you can't sell those things because nobody's getting dressed anymore, you need to start kind of like supplying men with things that they can continue to consume or, or live a lifestyle around. That's just, a, you know, it's more than just a jacket. And so a lot of my team was like, look, we got to keep Angel Bespoke. That's what you grew. And I was kind of like, man, I think that it's time to kind of grow something. We need to be a part. I want to be a part of something bigger than Angel Bespoke. And that's when we decided to change the name. And, and, and so when we, we actually changed the Instagram and all that stuff, we decided that, you know, at that time, it was good for me to personally take a break off of Instagram to kind of focus the, 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 our followers to what we were doing and, and the world we were trying to create and, and this lifestyle brand we were trying to build as opposed to like Angel personally and himself, and which has been the case the last six years with Angel Bespoke. And so I felt like after a year of doing that, I started my own personal page now. And the idea is that, you know, I, I'm still not very personal on my, on my page. I, it's almost like 99.9% .9 menswear and, and tailored wise. Uh, but it's essentially, you know, getting people, you know, inspired by how I dress, how I put things together, how I put our own things together, and then driving them back to our, you know, company page so that they can see the product that I wore and they, they can obviously like, you know, it can click them, it can click towards the, the our MTO collection. They can purchase it there, which is obviously extremely favorably priced, or they can, you know, they can feel led to, to schedule a, a, a private appointment with myself or one of my sales guys. I am glad you have the personal page back though, because like as a friend, I, I'm sure even a lot of clients feel that way. Like, yeah, you know, you want to see, you know, you couldn't, you can post about like family or your vacation and stuff on 18 amendment anymore. But back in the day, I suppose, you know, when we were smoking cigars and like have, you know, acting a fool and stuff, you can still post that. Now that you have a personal page, we can still do that at the same time, you know? Correct. Correct. So, yeah. So, I mean that now with me having a personal page, I, you know, I get to kind of drip, you know, my kids and my life aside, outside of menswear to my friends and people that follow me. And, and it's fun. Like, it's it, interesting because now that I have my personal pages, I'm almost like approaching it with such a different kind of like mentality where I, I'm not like purposely trying to get more followers. I'm just trying to like really, I'm not even focused on that. I'm just going, I just want to put out the content that I want people to know how much I love what, what we're making, what we're designing, what we're what kind of creating. And I want them to kind of like feel like they're with me when I'm in New York, when I'm in Miami, when I'm in, you know, Italy, when I'm in California, you know, and, and so it's been fun. Still feel that your, do you still feel that your personal account relates back to your brand quite a bit? Yeah. You know, so what I typically do, I mean, currently now what I do is every time I'm posting, I don't post very post. I've never been like a consistent Instagrammer which is why it's great that, you know, my team handles the company page because, you know, I, I'll post two days in a row and then I won't post for two weeks. And it's not, and it's just because, you know, I'm, I'm not taking it seriously to the point where I'm really trying to have a schedule. It's just, for me, it's just kind of like when I have something, I'm like, oh, I, I want to put this out there. But typically when I do put, the, put it out there or, you know, I'm wearing something, especially now with, with our new MTO collection, I, I want people to see how, I, how Angel wears it how and other different ways angels wearing because we we've had several people who have purchased jackets or trousers or you know whatever from our mto collection and and then they end up 
seeing that I'm wearing it in a different way than we shot it. And it gives them gives it life. Yeah. I didn't know you could wear it this way. I didn't know you could wear it with jeans and this. So it's cool. And it allows me to kind of like really give this picture of like, Hey man, there's like seven different ways you can really wear this. And here's three or four of them and I'll keep dripping them. And then recently, I mean, it was kind of light yesterday, but I kind of like did one of those like very, very, very kind of uh, slippery slopes that you can get into, which is when you go on stories and say, ask me questions because you can get some, you can get some doozies thrown at you. Um, Nobody asks me questions when I do that. I have to ask myself <laughs> fucking questions. <laughs> oh, that's not true. I asked Jay questions. He just doesn't answer. Yeah, but you right, asked me right. like fucking questions that I can't answer in public. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's funny. That's why, you know, it's, it, I always tell guys that in the business that I'm friends with, I'm like, guys, it's always good when you do this stuff like via that route as opposed to like live because then someone's asking you a question and you're truly ignoring it, you know? And, and so you're distracted and you're fucking looking yeah. at the question. And you're like, Oh, like, how do I look like I, I did not see this fucking question. Exactly. Like, <laughs> did you ask me that? But, um, yeah, so I did it yesterday and, and I've got some really good feedback of like people just say, man, Hey, we just, we love hearing from you. And so, you know, my team and I, we're, we're trying to put together, we're, we're trying to put together videos and, and, and be more engaging because, you know, in Instagram historically I've been so it's been all photos. And unless you meet me, no one really gets to hear from me where I did it in Spanish. And we had so many people come in and go, wait, dude, you speak Spanish. It's like, yeah, bro, of course I speak Spanish. I still but speak it was, it was yeah, great English. <laughs> right. I don't, I, I don't speak good English, but. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting, you talked about like being able to sort of drip the different looks on your personal Instagram. And that's always nice because it lets people sort of, like you said, they experience it in a new way or they see a new possibility. And I think, you know, maybe that's something that the brand itself wouldn't want to sort of push necessarily right away, but you're able to sort of do it outside that bubble, but still within the sphere. Right. And I'm sure sometimes too, people get like, sort of like, like you said, they get like blown away. Like, oh, you can wear that like that, or you can do that with jeans or, you know, like how often do you get like a response back where someone's like, oh yeah, I'd never even considered that. I get responses often where I, if I wore it, I'll get a DM and someone says like, oh man, like now I have a different way. I didn't even know you, could, you, uh, you would wear like that. So it's fun because obviously, look, as me being an artist and, and, and a creative, we obviously have the liberty and the, and the freedom of doing things that most people wouldn't try because, you know, a lot of people are going, oh, but you can get away with that because this and this and this and that. And so... I'll wear specific pieces in, in ways that are much more eccentric or, or in a way that most people wouldn't dare wear them. But it's different when you see someone wearing, you go, oh man, that doesn't look as crazy as it kind of sounds. Yeah. I'm going to try yeah. that. And so it, it is fun when, when they see that and, and that kind of revelation hits them. And then, you know, it's like an aha moment. And they're like, oh, I'm going to do that. Yeah, especially like like these big, bright tartans and stuff, right? Like if you don't really, if you can't relate to yourself, it's going to be very hard for you to decide to make that purchase. So seeing right. it live, seeing it worn, seeing it worn on different faces or something that you can relate to uh, will help make that decision a lot easier. Actually, th that, that's a great example because so last... I say great la things, bro. <laughs> last last <laughs> fall winter... Right <laughs> last fall winter, we did a, uh, we did a, a holiday collection and... Um, you know, one of my favorite jackets is like this pretty like bold tartan plaid. Um, and we did it with the gold, gold blazer buttons. And it, we, we actually 
named it our holiday plaid blazer. And, and at first everyone was like, Oh, it's great. I, you know, I, I, and it was me trying to tell people guys, this isn't like just the blazer you wear to your holiday party. And then it took them seeing me. I wore it in so many different ways that people were like, this is crazy. I didn't know you could wear it in so many different ways. And we got more and more sales from it because they saw me wear it with tuxedo trousers and a white dress shirt and like, you know, a bow tie. They saw me wear it with, uh, you know, a, a black t-shirt, a pair of jeans and a pair of Belgian slippers. They saw me wear it with, you know, turtleneck and a, a pair of jeans and a pair of stubs. I wore it in so many different ways. And I wore it for Christmas. I, I mean, I wear that jacket almost nine months out of the year. And then for me, it's not a holiday blazer. It is in theory, a, uh, you know, in America, these tartans tend to lend themselves towards the holidays. Yeah. But, um, for me, if it's not a red tartan, I mean, you can, you get a lot of wear that during the year in so many different ways. It's fun to wear and it's cool. And it doesn't have to be so kind of pigeonholed to like, you know, a Christmas jacket. That's a really interesting way to look at it. Cause again, for me, I would have thought like, well, I'm not a big blazer guy anyway, but like a tartan, I would have definitely kind of put into that like November to February timeframe. But you're saying right. you pretty much wear it all the time. I was wearing that blazer, honestly, until, I mean, New York starts to get warm, maybe in like April. Hmm. And I, I, I start wearing that blazer in September and I stop wearing it in, in March, like, nice. like end of March. I, I mean, you know, on a normal year, uh, I typically do trunk shows March, August and November. And I'm taking that jacket with me in March through my trunk shows and still wearing it. It's one of my favorite jackets. I've had it for years and literally, like, yeah, I just, you know, I just keep wearing it. So, I, and I wear it in several different ways and several different manners, whether it's high, like, you know, black tie in, in a black tie manner, or I dress it down and wear it like, you know, with the, with the collar pop and a pair of black sweatpants with, you know, with new balances to take my kid to go get coffee. Yeah, I think like with tartans, the, mo the most important thing for a clothier is to show how many different ways you can wear it. Because the biggest fear is that, oh, people are going to remember this jacket and I don't want to look like I own just one fucking jacket. And everybody sees me in this same jacket every time because the pattern is so bright. Everybody's going to remember it and you're going to get that, whoa, or dude, that's too much for, for one time. Right. And uh, right. seeing it worn in different ways can uh, show people that, yo, this is a good piece for you to own because you can wear it this many ways and make it look different. Hey, look, I, I, and I agree. I think that the, the problem with clothier or the, the challenge that clothiers uh, typically face is the idea of I need more clothes to show what we have, because if it's a if it's a guy or a girl walking around with a fabric book, you know, there's not a lot, a, much, a lot of imagination any client can have when you're just having fabric swatches. And so yeah. there is that, but you know, I'm a huge component of, you know, I'm against waste. Yeah. And you know, when I, when I was with Astro and Black and when I started the business, I had so much clothes, so much, like I was making so much for myself that I ended up giving so much away to like, you know, obviously homeless shelters and all that stuff and, 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 and friends. And then I started realizing like, man, the greats, they don't wear a lot of things. They wear a lot. They wear pieces over, over and over again. And so I started kind of taking that, that ideology. And I was like, man, I'm just going to make myself specific pieces done well. And I'm just going to wear the crap out of them. And I don't care if anyone thinks like you just wore that three times this week. I don't care. It looks amazing. And then, but at the same time, and you, uh, you know, what you're really doing indirectly is you're, you're creating a, a uniform for yourself in this 
this, these three or four pieces that you're known for. And people know that you can make anything in this business. Obviously, that's why you're walking around with the, with the fabric book. But the idea of like, look at Tom Ford. Tom Ford doesn't wear anything but a black suit. And, but everyone's buying everything he's putting out there. Yeah, I was just going to say the thing I love about, like you talking about those different looks too, is it, it increases the value of that piece for the consumer, for the person who buys it, right? Because their cost per wear, if they can wear that 10 different ways, is going to go way down over time, as opposed to if they think I can only wear this tartan gold button blazer, you know, November, December, a couple times, then it's going to take them forever to get a decent ROI on that piece. Right. Well, you just said it. You want to get more clients in this business. You want to get, you want to hope you want to retain more clients in this, you know, obviously made to measure custom business yeah. is you have to show your clients. One is value proposition. Two is that you care. And then you're not just trying to sell them anything that the, the, the book has, but you, you, you know, that everything you're selling them, there is a value proposition and, and that there is, there is wearability, meaning, you know, clients want to be like, Hey, if I'm, if I'm going to wear this, buy this jacket, you know, we don't all have clients that buy, you know, 50 jackets a year because they're just super wealthy. You know, uh, you know, we, we have the majority of our clients, the guy is the guy who buys this jacket and says, what can I wear this with? And then he wants, he, you know, he wants to hear that, man, you can wear this jacket in five different manners. Cause then he's going, now it's worth buying. Hmm. Yeah, and so, right. And so we, we need to be more value driven to customers, not like discount driven, but more value driven to customers when we're um, presenting them with options, because one, it shows that we do have their interests at heart and that we care. And then we're not just trying to say, Hey, you see this book, it has 45 fabrics in it. You should buy every single one. That's not, you know, that's not going to get you anywhere. So Angel, throw back a little bit, right? So um, we first met in Pity and uh, you're one of the very few American clothiers who go to Pity. I don't know why uh, not as many uh, people go to Pity uh, as they should. But uh, what was that first decision like to go to Pity? What made you want to go to Pity? And uh, what did you feel when you first went there? Yeah, so I mean, that's a great question. So when I, in 2012, when I left Ashton Black and uh, well, actually, when I was at Astro and Black, you know, I was always following this whole pity scene. And my last year at Astro and Black, well, my, the, the, towards the end of Astro and Black, uh, they had sent me and my, one of my good friends, Guy Gohari, to Pituomo. This was 2000, summer of 2011, I think. And um, they wanted us to represent Astro and Black and, at, and the brand at that, at that time. And when, you know, I understood the, 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 the heaviness and how much like weight it held to be there and to be seen there and to be photographed there that when I left Astro and Black shortly after that um, and started Angel Bespoke, the first thing I knew that I had invested in was not like marketing or was not like, you know, a, a magazine page. I needed to be like invest into the brand. And for me, when I started Angel Bespoke, it was like build the brand first and then bring the clients. Don't build the clients because then it's going to be, if you, if you build the client base first uh, and then you, you try to build the brand afterwards, it's going to be tough because you've already have accustomed your client to a specific look. And if you're trying to build a brand that is different than what you've sold them, they're not going to want to buy into that. And so I lost pretty much almost 90% of my, my client base from Astro and Black, one out of respect for, for not bringing over clients and, 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 and having a, a proper agreement with them. But two is because I knew that when I left there, I wanted to kind of create my own thing and not, you know, I didn't want to give people a service, which in Astro and Black, it's like your kind of normal custom service where you're just 
making the client anything he wants. That's not the business that I wanted to be in. I wanted to be, I, I wanted to build a brand and, and essentially run a made to measure business where it was almost structured as a ready to wear business, where there was a, a world, a, 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 a very convicted aesthetic. And then you were, you were making that look for them. And so when I, you know, I, I went to Pitsy immediately when I started Angel Bespoke and, and it was a huge, you know, investment because it was a lot of money and I knew no one and I didn't even know what I was going to do over there. But it was, I quickly learned that, you know, all these mag, you know, you have magazine, you get the GQ of every different country from around the world there. And then you times that by 50 magazines, they're all there. And so it was, it was a time where like I was able to build a brand and, and, and look at that time it's different now because Pitti has kind of changed from what it was back in the days. But it, it, at that time it was like, if you were in the business, you were at Pitti Womo. And I knew that. And I wanted to leverage that at that time. What was that feeling like when you walk right in and you have 50 photographers right at the gate? Um, did, they, did they photograph you or you just walked in and uh, like when I walk in, nobody fucking shoots me. I'm like standing there like, shoot me, motherfucker. But then nobody shoots me. But uh, did you get photographed a lot on the first trip? <laughs> <laughs> my, my, first, my first trip, yeah, my first trip, it, 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 was, um, it was good because uh, I was able to kind of like... Uh, gain a lot of traction with photographers and all that stuff. And again, you have to understand. So what Pitchy likes, because as I started to progress in, you know, when you start seeing specific guys who are a little bit more toned down and a, a little bit more um, kind of classic with their mentoring, they're not shot as much, you know, because, you know, Pitchy has turned into a, a show where magazines are like, give us like the craziness and at that time not that i was dressing crazy but i was dressing with loud colors and the that tends to do well that was doing well at the time i think photographers at this point have gotten bored with shooting that but it was early on is 2012 and you know me go walking in with like a purple jack a lavender blazer and white jeans it was something cool and then you know like let's be honest there's not a lot of latin people in pity you know and so there's, there's typically not a lot of diversity in, in, in Pitsy Womo. So you have this guy who looks like he's Latin, but maybe doesn't look like he's Latin. He has a beard. No one can really figure him out. And so they're kind of like, Let, let's shoot him. So it, it, thankfully, thankfully it, it, it worked out in, in my favor. And the funniest thing was, is that I'll tell you a really cool story. I mean, is that so post, so Pitsy passes, I, I do the Pitsy. And then like about four or five months later, I'm sitting in, in, a, in a, like a coffee shop in Miami and an old friend of mine from, um, from college is in Korea and she's working there and she's like, I'm sitting at a coffee shop and she's like, you're on a magazine cover. I'm like, uh, yeah. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, that's not me. And she's like, I'm positive. It's you. I'm like, and I'm, I'm telling her, I'm like, Amy, if I was on a magazine cover, do, what do you think I would know this? And she's like, I'm almost positive. It's, you and so I go send me a picture and it was actually a magazine called Luell magazine took a photo for me from pity and just put me on a cover of a magazine which is funny because at one point you're like I'm on the cover of a magazine and at the other part you're like should I sue them and so uh, or should I buy every copy right yeah well no here's the here's the sad thing one is I didn't sue them two is I didn't they wouldn't even send me a copy what dude she, <laughs> that she, happened she to had, me with fucking plaza at Wilma too <laughs> bought me, she had to buy me two or three copies and send them to me wow <laughs> they didn't believe me they're like you're not you're, you're not the guy in the cover 
<laughs> you talked about being a uh, Latin and being at Pitti, and it's kind of rare. And I, I kind of wanted to to go back to that for a second because you talked about like picking up a little bit of your style from like everywhere you went along the way. Right. But you also talked about being like a Puerto Rican growing up in New York, and you know, Puerto being Puerto Rican is probably one of the most unique uh, experiences in American as an American, right? Like if you're a Puerto Rican, you know, you're an American, but you have this secondary identity, and there's this whole subculture. You know, how much right. did that influence? your style or, or does it influence your style today? So look, I was born and raised in Brooklyn. So in, in, in theory, I am American, not Puerto Rican. My parents are the ones I'm actually first generation American. They, they're the ones who came from Puerto Rico. Well, um, well they're American also there because they're Puerto Rican. They, they're American sure. So they, they, they were American by default. Correct. The, um, but you know, you don't have the same American, I guess, luxuries, if you're living in Puerto Rico, as you, yeah. if you do, if you, you know, living in, in America, but you know, this is also a time when they came to New York is when most Latin, uh, a lot of Latin people were coming to New York or to America. So this was a time where Miami wasn't really the, back when they came, which was in the sixties and seventies, you know, Miami wasn't Cubans, you know, the, the Cubans actually all came to New York. And then in the, in the late 70s is when they all migrated back down to Miami. Uh, because I don't know if it was too cold. I, I don't know the story, the backstory behind it. But, right, exactly. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think, look, I love being from New York. And, 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 and um, I also love being Puerto Rican. Um, but New York, it, it's like I grew up in, in New York. And, I, and, and what I feel is like the most incredible time because it was extremely hard because, you know, I grew up in an environment that, it sucked. It was very, very uh, broken down. And, you know, the, the, you know, when I grew up in the eighties here, it was like the poverty was disgusting. And, and what you saw in the movie, um, you know, uh, what's it called? Uh, American gangster. And, and that stuff is real, man. I mean, that, that's what we grew up in. And, and, and these tenement apartments that were like gross and, you know, shootouts everywhere. And, and so, but you, you, I, I also grew up in an environment that the sense of being an artist and, 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 and wanting to create was so prevalent. And you had guys like Keith Haring, you had guys like, you know, John michel Basquiat and all these different artists kind of creating some really, really cool stuff. And, and so I think that, you know, obviously I'm a, I'm a huge fan of what New York has turned into in terms of the betterment of New York. Um, but, you know, you go to a lot of these neighborhoods, i.e. My, my neighborhood in particular, Williamsburg, which, you know, I always say, you know, Williamsburg, when I grew up, was, was really dope. Now it's just pretty. You know, it's, it's nice. It's where a lot of, you know. Well, hipster um, now. I was, it's not even hipster. It's like a lot of, like, I mean, because here's the thing is, like, the wave of artists in New York City started in Soho. Yeah. And when they were living in Soho and live workspaces and so on, they were living and, and working out of their own lofts. And then they got pushed out of Manhattan. They all moved over to Williamsburg and they were like doing the same thing. And then as regentrification happened and all these redevelopments of like properties and all stuff, everyone keeps getting pushed East and East. And there is no hipsters. I mean, I guess in theory, if you want to call someone who wears black skinny jeans and a pair of like, and a leather uh, motorcycle jacket as a hipster, sure. But like real artists, they're not, I mean, a lot of real artists are not left living in, in, in Williamsburg because it's unaffordable. It's, it's, it's extremely expensive. And you have, you know, you have all these, you have a lot of like financial guys and young financial guys and a lot young marketing guys that are doing very well financially that, want to have a sense of being like, Oh, cool. And so they moved to Brooklyn um, as opposed to living in like, 
Midtown, you know? Yeah. Um, and that was the culture back in the days. Like, I'm just gonna get an apartment in Midtown. Um, but now they're living in Brooklyn and some condo in Brooklyn. And so the essence of my old Williamsburg neighborhood, you know, it, it's slightly there We're on the, on what I call the, the South side of Williamsburg, which is on the South side of the Williamsburg bridge, which is where uh, Peter Luger is. But on the North side of the bridge is uh, very, very, very new. And it's very regentrified. And it look, and it looks beautiful and it looks awesome. It's new, but it's not, it's not like inspiring. You mentioned Basquiat, and uh, I happen to notice that you have a great photo of Basquiat on your Instagram. And uh, one of you, you quote him. It's one that's, of my favorite. That's in New York. That's in New York. I grew up in right, like that that picture. Yeah, and that you have a, his your quote that you have on there of him is one of my favorites of his. It's, I don't listen to what, what critics say. I don't know anybody who needs a critic to find out what art is. And right. I, I feel like that that sort of attitude is really represented in the way you talk about your art as design and fashion yeah look so even though i grew up in this with my mom i'm an artist and when i say i'm an artist like i actually like grew up painting and drawing and i'm actually a real artist like you know i'm not like a designer that or a menswear guy that says oh i'm an artist and like and and, and not that i'm trying to like knock them I, I love when people are artistic because I'm obsessed with art and anyone who associates or, or is connected with art in any way, whether it's music, uh, dance, anything. However, you know, I grew up painting and, and uh, I grew up doing graffiti. Uh, I grew up uh, doing, I was, my art in terms of like scholastically was, I was known for doing portraits. Okay. And I went to the High School of Art and Design, which is known for obviously uh, Mark Jacobs graduated from there, Calvin Klein, Tony famous, Bennett. Famous, famous yeah. uh, school. Yeah, so it, it, it was, it was I'm very prideful in, in saying that I'm, a, I'm an alumni from there. Uh, I have a way, way, way long way to go before I can even like put myself anywhere near the same ocean that these guys are swimming in. I, I, I am an artist and, and I love uh, that I see things, even this industry, in the lenses of, of art, in the lenses of painting, in the lenses of color and all that stuff. So it's, um, I associate myself as an artist and, and that's why my, a lot of my inspirations aren't like, you know, I obviously have the, the, the menswear inspirations that you would typically like think of, but a lot of my inspirations are really heavily based off like artists like Basquiat and Herring and, you know, and Picasso and stuff like that. Mm, yeah. I'm a huge Basquiat fan. Uh, when I saw that photo on your Instagram, I, you feel a connection to that, like if you understand that art. And I think it's interesting that you said that's the New York you grew up in because he painted such a unique image of, of the city. Yeah. And, you know, I have, I have a Basquiat tattoo on my arm I've had for years because, that, you know, that's how, you know, and I don't, know, I don't know if you knew this, you probably do, but, you know, Basquiat being from New York and he's half Puerto Rican. And so it was like the huge connection I've always had with him. And, and, and so I got his, uh, his famous crown it's on my forearm uh, because, you know, it, it's, he's allowed me to go, you know, always create. And again, it's like, it, it, I actually attribute this in the menswear world as well. When you, you know, when he says like, there is, you know, how can someone critique you? For me, it's like, there is a lot of rights and wrongs that people have established in this industry. Like, oh, you can't do that. I hate subscribing to that because as an artist, I'm like, I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to dress however I want. I'm going to wear it how I want it. And if, you know, the rebellion inside of me as an artist is saying, oh, that's what you're supposed to do or, or it's wrong. I'm going to do it just like that. So that you, so you know that I'm rebelling against it. 
And then, you know, um, thankfully it works, you know? And, and so because of that, I don't have, you know, most of my friends play in the space of like of rebellion and in terms of artistically. And I don't, I, I don't have a lot of friends in the world of like ultra true, you know, we subscribe to this and this is how it was done in the 1920s and thirties. Like, you know, and so, uh, yeah. That's a great outlook. I mean, I, I love that, you know, art, art sort of uh, is your compass with this as opposed to design or menswear being your true North. It, it's art. Yeah. That's a, that's a unique view. And I think, you know, that's why 18th amendment sort of stands out for what it is. It's funny. The, so when I, when I think of 18th amendment, I always say, you know, a lot of people say like, if you had to describe 18th amendment as a, as a, as a picture, you know, cause I, I, I'm a huge component of photos because I'm a visual learner. Yeah. Um, and so when I, even when I, you know, the, in my, I guess in my kind of like the, the, the history and my path in this menswear world as being a clothier, you really have to learn how to like paint a picture for your client. And, and I've, what I've learned in the path that I've taken in this whole entire like 10 years or whatever of being in this industry is that it's very difficult to sit down with a client who obviously has no imagination and, and he makes, he, he, he's paid to be brilliant in finances or he's paid to be brilliant as a, as a surgeon or whatever it is in the, in the, in the, as a lawyer. And you're sitting there with a bold like pattern fabric. And he's like, well, what does this look like as a jacket? They don't, you know, yeah. I, I always taken the, the, the route of not saying, well, this is what it looks like as a jacket because that's not enough for them. For me, yeah. me I want to paint, I want to paint a full picture of like, look, no. So take this fabric and we're going to wear, we're going to make this as a jacket and you're going to wear it with this shirt and these pants. And you're going to be driving this car and you're, and you're, you're pulling up to this restaurant and you're sitting at this table and this is what you're ordering. Wow. And you're, you're almost like creating this, this film for them with them starring in it. And then they're going, man, that sounds and looks amazing. I want that jacket. They still have no clue what it's going to look like, but you've painted a picture to them. And that's what we in this industry have to do. We have to keep, you know, I always like to say like, I sell by painting with, without, a, without a paintbrush because, you know, I'm just painting pictures for my clients of, of, of a world that they, that they themselves can live in with how we're dressing them. And, and th there's a huge attribute. I mean, there's a huge connection of, of I should say, with, with, you know, the art world to our world, because it's not just, it's not just like, oh, I'm walking around with fabrics. Actually, for me, I'm, the, the meeting is more successful for me with a client when I can sit down with a client and the, the, we spend an hour and a half talking talking about what we're going to do. And when I leave, I never take out any fabric book because they're just sitting there. I've painted this picture for them so well that they, 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 you know, they're just like so bought into it that they're like, I'm in, just make whatever you want for me. I trust you. You're telling the story with your art. You're using the art to, to tell the story of the piece. So, yeah, I mean, so I love art, man. It, it is literally what consumes my mind. It's what I pretty much, you know, what I'm surfing through Instagram, you know, what I find myself serving through Instagram these days is two things. Um, uh, probably not the sexiest thing to say, but it's, it's mainly art and cycling. Well, I guess like uh, your latest collaboration with Sunflower Man uh, is, is uh, you know, this whole story describes why you did that. And it's, it's so smart as well. Now that you can't do photo shoots outside, I imagine that brainstorming uh, session with Sunflower Man and you about how to create this 
collect how to display your collection in in an art format is it must be uh, incredible oh it was fun work look I, i've known uh matt for years the guy's amazing and i met him actually i met him in pity years and years and years ago he he actually did a painting of uh of my wife and i um this is back in 2013 and um we've made, remained friends since then and we've always stayed in touch and and I had this idea of when we were doing this collection, I said, hey man, we're obviously doing a photo shoot and we're shooting the looks, but I have this idea of like the inspiration behind it. And typically, you know, people do like sketches, but like I have you, like you're the guy. And I'm like, please like put this to, to like, I, I want you to like, you know, map this out for my, my followers and our, and our, and our, our clients via your imagery and it just it was it came out so well we were just so happy with him with how everything came out that's awesome man yeah he's great we've we've had him on the show and he's just so the ability to to describe his art and to like embrace like certain elements of of menswear of looks through his art is is really fantastic right so angel we have these uh these 10 questions that we jump into with our guests usually and it sort of it sets a baseline for dapper villains from from everyone so we can get sort of these these same concepts through people and we'd love we'd love to run through these with you if you don't mind yeah go ahead let's do it so we we always start out you know sort of like looking at the past and you know when did you first know that you had an interest in menswear and men's style i know you talked about like you were working at sotheby's you were in real estate but when did that initial interest sort of that seed get planted in your brain uh 2003 and again i i specific i always yeah so it's 2003 and it was definitely the it was the sartorialist you know blog i i I always give scott credit for that the guy had an amazing idea of photographing street style i think he was like the originator i don't know if he's the originator obviously the originator street style might be bill cunningham but um in my kind of eyes and, and what I knew at that time, 2003, I found his blog and it, it really kind of like sparked the interest and kind of intrigued me so much that it was what said, you know, it was what allowed me to go, I want this, what I want, I want to dress like this. I want to, I want to live this life. I want to be this type of guy. And so I would say 2003. Nice. Very specific. And, you know, again, like you're able to bring it back to like a certain point that's like, unique that a lot of people have that that one that one instance or that one thing that sort of brought it out for them mm-hmm. now i know you talked about you had some mentors uh could you go into detail about who your mentors were in the industry as you were coming up yeah so i have two mentors um and both of them are in atlanta and actually actually one of them was the mentor to that guy as well so uh one of them is the mentor to a lot of people um but the the the, the original mentor was uh, Leonard Gresham, and he was based out of Atlanta at the time. I think he's in North Carolina now. The guy's brilliant. He's a menswear historian, you know, menswear historian, like just is brilliant. And um, I used to spend hours with him, and I'm thankful he, he actually took the time and, and really sewed into me in terms of like really teaching me and helping me understand you know, this industry and, and the history behind it. And um, he actually was also a mentor of my other mentor, which was Quasi, um, who was a, um, who's still based out of Atlanta. Um, and 
Quasi used to be a, a, a Ralph Lauren sales. He was like one of the main sales guys at, at Ralph Lauren, actually with Fonsworth Bentley. Oh, wow. um, and this is back in like early 2000s. And Quasi, I had just moved to Atlanta, literally had like barely any money. And I was really trying to understand the industry and, and hanging out with him and, under, you know, hanging out with Leonard Gresham. And, and Quasi was like, well, like, hey, man, I'm going to give you a bunch of clothes that I, you know, I, I no longer wear so that you can get your start. And Quasi was like gifting me all these old Ralph Lauren stuff that he, you know, he, he had. Um, and I'm very thankful for those two guys, man, because it, it, it really kind of helped put my mind in perspective and, the, and that passion into this industry. And so I owe a lot to them. That's awesome. The fact that he, just, he gifted you a bunch of stuff and like kind of helped you get a grasp of looks and, and feels and stuff. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, fabric comes into play in menswear. This is a mandatory question. Jay inserts into the 10. He'll well, answer my competitor. So uh, let's skip this question. I'm <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> we, we talk about fabric a lot in the menswear space. And like you talked about the books and like showing it to people. And, you know, I make stuff. So it's for me, it's about the feel. And I'm constantly going back and forth with Jay about fabric. He's a wealth of knowledge. And, you know, we all have like our favorites, but if you could just pick one, one fabric type for that you could use for everything for the rest of your time and you had to stick to it, what would it be? So here's the thing. Uh, I have to answer that seasonally because uh, we're in a seasonal business. And so, and I'll also answer it giving respect to every relationship I have in the fabric business where one is not better than the other, you know, because I love Jay and I love every, you know, a, a lot of other relationships that I have in the, in the industry. I, I would say, look, in terms of um, if I had to pick one fabric for the fall winter, my, you know, I love tweed. Tweed is something that I absolutely love. I, I, I love, you know, how it drapes. I love the heaviness of it. Um, I love the, the grittiness of it. it gives me the sense of like old world, like, it, 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 ha- it has like this, this sense of like this old world, like, you know, steel worker yeah. in uniform. And, and I love, just, I love wearing tweed in the, in the, in the fall, winter. And then in, in the summer, the spring, summer, I tend to really lean on like drier fabric. So I love uh, dry hand fabrics that are kind of like three or four ply mm-hmm. and high twist. Uh, they, they travel extremely well. They drape incredible. They're on the heavier side. They're they're not again. None of these fabrics are very luxurious to the hand, um, which is fine um, for me. Uh, but they drape really well, and 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 they tend they just look and perform incredible. And those would be my favorite. Uh, they can be found at several fabric vendors. <laughs> um, but I would say tweed for the fall winter and 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 a more dry high twist um, for the spring summer. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I I can definitely get behind the tweed. I mean, well, I love tweed. I love the look of it. And like you, I I love the feel, the drape, the grittiness, but again, I I hate winter. So Jay's the only guy I know wearing tweed in Bangkok. (laughs) Uh, I love the open weave stuff that he mentioned, the the high twists and unlined those jackets are, it just works. And uh, they're great for traveling too. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. I, I tend towards the, the lighter, more open stuff as well, just because function. Now, right. of all, I know you said you're, you're paring down, like you're not trying to own a ton of stuff. You're trying to own key pieces. 
know, what's your favorite menswear item that you own? Um, I own, this is one of the things that I own a lot of. I think one of the main favorite menswear items that I own is overcoats. I'm like obsessed with overcoats. Really? And so, yeah, I have a lot of overcoats, man. And also here's the thing is I I have this personal like um, goal in terms of uh, mentor wise. Um, I I think my son will be about the same size as me and maybe a little taller. He's a big kid. Uh, He's he's trending extremely tall. Um, So, you know, growing up in in an environment where, you know, in my, in my family, no one really left it. No one handed down anything in terms of clothing. And my dad and I, are my dad's five six um 130 pounds and again i got all my grandfather's like height and weight and so um i have no hand-me-downs aside from watches from my dad and so my one of my goals is is to collect an insane amount of evening wear because I, i'm obsessed with wearing like black tie and like evening wear and it's to collect an insane amount of evening wear and i'm, I'm talking about like upwards of like 50 evening wear like outfits and Damn. then hand them all down to my son, nice. as well as my overcoats. He'll be set for life. Yeah, I don't really. You know, look, I, I, I always tell him like, you can, you'll make your own suits. It's fine, but you're gonna be wearing my stuff in the evening wear. And so I, 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 my favorite thing is I love wearing evening wear a lot, and I own an incre- I have an incredible collection of of uh, overcoats. He'll be rocking that Casentino yeah. and all these uh, very great. unique That's overcoats. Right. That's right. That's right. That's awesome. And I love that. You know, it's funny that you said your dad was like five, six, 130. I'm a big dude as well. My father was five, 10, 140. Wow. Yeah. So it's look at that. Funny. Yeah, man. But yeah, you know, it's funny that you talk about like handing it down to your son because uh, we recently did an episode with the uh, Sartorial Armenians out in Boston. And uh, Alex on one of the guys talked about like recreating a jacket that his grandfather had because it was was so iconic to him and that he didn't have it anymore. And he wanted to recreate it to kind of recapture that connection. And I think, you know, it's good that you're planning that with your son, that hopefully you'll be able to give him these things and it'll be the same size and it'll, it'll be something he has a connection to long-term. Yeah, man. It's, uh, you know, it's always been, uh, I've always, I'm really into kind of legacy and all that stuff. And, I really want my son kind of like understanding the passions that I have from art. My son loves drawing and painting and all that stuff. So nice. I really encourage art in this house between him and my daughter. It, it, it's not in our, in my wife and I's uh, aesthetic favor because the, they tend to paint the walls a lot. Uh, <laughs> but I also don't, I also don't believe in saying no to like stuff like that. And so I just like to redirect it. So when they're painting on the wall, I'm like, I'm not saying don't do that. I'm kind of more saying like, Hey, I get it. I did it. Yeah. <laughs> I did it. I did it illegally. However, <laughs> let's paint on this wall where we have this paper for you. <laughs> so let's, let's maybe pick a color other than hot pink. Right, exactly. <laughs> but let's use something that washes off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, denim's a big thing in menswear. You know, we do a lot of stuff with denim at, uh, at Dapper Villains. And, but, you know, neither Jay or I are into like the super heavy denim look. And we always find it interesting to ask people, do you think it's okay? Or, or do you ever think it's acceptable to wear denim on denim on denim on denim, you know, i.e. the Canadian tuxedo? I personally do not. 
where I've worn double denim. I've gone like denim jeans, a denim shirt, and like obviously a blazer or something like that. Yep. Or I've never gone like full on denim. I love wearing denim. It's, it's, you know, who doesn't love wearing denim? I'm not like into like 18 ounce denim jeans either that, that feel like a, a brick wall. Yeah. Um, but I do, I, I don't like stretched skinny jean denim either. Um, but like, I, I would say not, like the whole Canadian tuxedo is not, is not for me. It's a very polarizing thing. And I'll tell you what, we've been very surprised by this. Very is probably surprised. one of the most surprising things that we ask. Yeah. And some people are like, oh yeah, yeah, do it. <laughs> yeah, look. If, if so, you said yes, though, that would be uh, very shocking. Here's the thing: <laughs> is, like, I, I would not. So you definitely not gonna hear me say yes. But you know, I, I'm also not a component. I'm not a big like. Uh, I don't like. Uh, how should I say this? I am not a champ. I don't like championing the idea of saying don't do that. Yeah. Because I don't like that being said to me. And so, I mean, look, if that's your thing, and if you if you feel like you're crushing it do it but uh, I don't, don't do the, don't do the canadian tuxedo now he's no, gonna no, you, you, <laughs> my, my, my 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 uh my my home team and i will not be pulling off any, uh, canadian tuxedos we do have a canadian who works with us though i, I think some people <laughs> rock it well and was, i was outsourcing fabrics the other day uh like denims specifically and i found peach denim and the guy who edits our podcast millhouse responded to my instagram he's like dude make a canadian tuxedo out of peach denim peach denim wow yeah, it was a unique find. Jeez. <laughs> Let, let's send Angel over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah send us your measurements. We'll get you a Canadian yeah. tux. Please, I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> he sounds so excited. <laughs> now, you know, one of the things that that really comes down a lot in, in the menswear world is people get very sort of clickish about their tailoring style. You know the British aesthetic, the you know Italian tailoring, the, the sort of classic American Brooks Brothers look. Do you have a a style that you lean towards or that you you prefer? And what is what do you think is the biggest influence on Eighteenth Amendment? I think the biggest influence on Eighteenth Amendment is the the beauty of being able to take the best out of all. Uh, we don't we don't pride ourselves in like we uh, love italian tailoring or we love british tailoring or we love american tailoring only we we say you know i love the the sensibility and the beauty of the structure of a british garment yet the softness of an italian uh italian tailoring mm -hmm. um but we wear it in a more old world american way and so i like all three um i i personally we don't, you know, our, our style is not structured shoulders, but at the same time, our style is not super like wrinkled shoulders and uh, ultra Neapolitan, or as they would say. And, you know, so it's like a, it's like, you know, it's a, it's a, it's like the mixture of all three. And we like to pull from all three and not kind of like, you know, uh, using the terminology of, of my buddy's company and my, two buddies company in, in England uh, called Anglo-Italian, but that's the idea. It's it, it, the idea is that we are very Anglo-Italian in an American Americana way is, 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 is taking, you know, bits and pieces from this, the ideology of, of British tailoring and the softness and the, and these kind of like uh, nonchalance of the Italian tailoring, mixing it together and wearing it with this old world Italian uh, Americana style. Mm. 
Yeah, I like that. I like that that blending. That sort of, I'll steal a, a elementary school term from America: that melting pot. That's it. The, you know, and so it, we are like the you know it, it is like essentially the New York of tailoring. You know, and so um, we we we're based out of a melting pot city, and we we want to grab all these d- different you know uh, beautiful aspects of each kind of house of tailoring, and you know create something that you know is what we call home something unique yeah nice now is there someone who you really look up to from a style perspective um that is a great question uh living or dead doesn't matter you know it, it it's i look up to i mean i don't know if i look up to is probably the, the right word because um i don't know if i look up to a lot of the style icons that i um, look towards for inspiration. I don't know if I look up to them. Um, I would say that, you know, cause when I, when I look at like the people that I love and I have a memory of like this photo bank of like photos in my iPad of like throughout the years of like, that I've collected of guys like, you know, um, you know, Duke Ellington, Miles Davis in his more artsier days, you know, and, 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 and then you got the, you know, you got the Rat Pack and you have the, the, the Cary Grants and you got the Fred Astaire's and you got all these different kind of like, you know, the Al Capone's and all that stuff. But I think that as a uh, Latin creative and, and, and someone in this business that, you know, there's not a lot of Latin people in our world of tailoring that are well known. I do look up to uh, Oscar de la Renta and to have someone of my own culture so elegant, so well known for tailoring and in this world. Um, so, although I don't know if I would necessarily say like, I look up to him, um, but the sense of, of being able to kind of like follow a legacy of, of, of our culture in this world, uh, I do, I do look up to that. Yeah. Nice. I, I love how you, it, it kind of rings back to, you know, there's a cultural aspect to it too. And it, it inspirational as well as sort of, um, emotional connection to it, I guess. Right. Sure. I mean, look, art is emotion, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It should be. Good art should be, right? Yeah, exactly. Now, on the flip side of that coin, is there anyone who's coming up right now that that maybe isn't on a lot of people's radar that you're super impressed by? Um, that's not on a lot of people's radar. Hmm. I so I don't know this guy. I don't I don't we've never met. Um and he, he doesn't, he does tailoring as well. Um, uh, but I think that what's brilliant about him is that he's kind of taken um, something that's not new. Uh, and it's this guy out of California called Rich Fresh. Um, he's taken this um, track suit kind of like dressed down, like um, almost like a luxury casual to a level where I think is so spot on brilliant. Um, and so he's built a brand that's so con- that has such a conviction that I'm such a fan of, you know, and, and, and so, um, I think that, I mean, I, obviously he's not underrated nor not known because I'm pretty sure a lot of people know him. He's dressing every celebrity with, with these track suits. So I, I doubt he's not known. I'm sure he's known by many, uh, if not by a lot. Um, but I think ever, ever since he started doing it, Cause he was always into tailoring and I, and I even love how he's kind of, his tailoring is not classic tailoring. 
you know, it's not like what you would, you know, you would see like a, a finance guy, go, you know, I need a Navy suit and I'm sure he could do that, but I love how he's taken his, his whole world of the, you know, the stripe and, and, and like this whole like track suit world into suiting. And I'm like, this is amazing. Now it looked like a lot of people have kind of, I mean, bit his style. Um, and that's when you kind of knowing you, when you've done it right, man, when, when people are just trying to do what you're doing and, and, you know, I, I think it's, you know, obviously it's the big, the, the biggest form of uh, flattery is, 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 uh, is copy or, or mockery. I forgot what to call it. Uh, imitation. Um, and I think a lot of people are trying to imi- imitate the, the, you know, what he's doing, but ever since he's been doing it, I've been so impressed with, um, how creative it is and him and I both have a tattoo together. Uh, I just realized in one of his pictures, him and I both have in the same spot, which is kind of crazy. We both have a tattoo in our inner wrist that says create um, in the same font, which is insane. Wow. I've never met the guy. Um, so we both have the same, literally the same exact tattoo on our wrist that says create. But um, yeah, I've been, I've been really a big fan of, uh, of what he's been doing and, and yeah. the, the growth and just how he's been able to really create a world around this kind of like aesthetic. I think it's so dope. It's, I think it's, he's doing an incredible job. Mm. And it's been so consistent too. Yeah. 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 We've had him, we have had him on the show. His first guest to uh, roll a whole joint and smoke an entire, uh, I think a whole nugget of weed uh, in the show. It, it is very interesting. Yeah, it's such a cool guy, but you're right. His his approach to tailoring is completely unique. And mm. that's why I think, like you said, other people are imitating it because it, it, it's a game changer in a lot of ways. Yeah, look, and, 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 and we are living in a world now where because the thought of tailoring is doing, the, the, thought, of, the thought of like being too heavily tailored in terms of your collection is, is dwindling, right? And so you have to, be able to build a collection that goes beyond just tailoring it. It's a lifestyle. It's, it is uh, joggers and sweatsuits that you can pair with, with, with tailoring and pair with an overcoat and, and, and feel like you still look, you had like this well put together, you know, but still casual look, but the, you know, there's a difference between, you know, me going, I, I want to do this beautiful like idea of like sweatsuits and like jogger pants. But then there's a difference of me saying, I want to put a stripe across them and a little yellow tag on them. And, and at that point, it's kind of like, whoa, brother, like that's rich, fresh all over it. Like yeah. be easy. Like yeah. let, 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 that, well, that's his, let him keep it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's a great, great answer. Yeah. Rich fresh is one of the most unique guys out there. And I, Jay and him have had quite a few conversations. Jay, you met him out in Cali actually, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I was high as fuck, but uh, yes, I met him in uh, California and uh, actually, you know, like what I like about his brand is, is, is uh, you know, he, he did the same thing uh, at that time when nobody believed in, in what he was doing, but he kept it consistent. And uh, that's very inspiring to see that growth. You know, what's wild when we interviewed him, he told us two years ago, him and his daughter were living in a homeless shelter. You know, and wow. when we did the interview, he was smoking weed in his custom-wrapped periwinkle Maserati. <laughs> that's that's that, that, as that. I love the come up. The come up is always a great story. It's a long-ass yeah. come up, though. I mean, he moved from was it uh, Louisiana, Jay? Yeah, he's from Memphis. 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 Yeah, he moved Memphis. from Memphis to LA, and he was just doing alterations. He was like carrying his little domestic machine around for years, doing alterations at people's houses. 
made his way out to LA with 300 bucks in his pocket. And, you know, just, it seems like a quick come up, but he, he's been at it for a decade. Definitely. Here's the thing is that people don't understand is that when you grow up in environments like, like Rich and I, the, the hunger we have, no, but no one's, no one has tasted, you know, they don't know what that, what that looks like when it feels like. So, you know, um, you know, we come from, you know, and I don't know what Memphis was, you know, or how, what, I don't know what the differences of like, you know, what the Memphis like environment is of what he grew up in versus like the Brooklyn I grew up in, but like just based off how he's kind of climbed and, and got to where he's at and, you know, me still climbing and trying, you know, to do my best to get, to get further. We, we, we do it with such a, with such a ravenous hunger that like we we're, we're not doing it just for us. We're doing it for those that stayed behind uh, those that couldn't get that that couldn't come with us and that those that wouldn't take the risk. And so we, we work with a hunger that you've never seen before. Absolutely. I see that in you too, for sure. I, I preach. I mean, and that's why I look at guys like that and I'm like, I'm so intrigued to see it. And I mean, I, I do my heart. That's why I know that like, again, I've never met, I would love to meet the guy one of the days. Um, although I don't smoke weed, so probably, I don't know if he, it'd be the, the best meeting for him, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, I do know that, you know, I've done my work, homework on him and, and, and known that he's kind of, he's from Memphis. He's been a tailor and, and, and has taken LA by storm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely on fire. And has I know we're in Maserati. COVID times and, you know, a lot of us aren't, aren't wearing pants to meetings anymore, you know, like just, you know, kind of being super casual, but. When it comes to menswear, when it comes to like a man, the way a man dresses, how formal do you think they should be on a daily basis? Here's the thing is, I think that I think that COVID has ruined what people think that they should look like on a daily basis because once COVID hit, they're like, oh, I'm just going to like, you know, stay home, do Zoom calls with a t-shirt and all that stuff. And it's almost like the, the sense of elegance and the sense of like, betterment of personal you know uh, of image has you know they, they a lot of people have kind of lost a grip on it because they've sunk into this hole of like ah, i'm just gonna be on camera and it doesn't matter and i think a lot of people have to understand that like your image is your brand yeah. and it's what you're, you're going to be known for and it's what you you associate yourself with and it's how you feel inside and and look i mean I, i'm not saying that someone needs to put on a suit every day and and if that's not what you do for work, but I think that in the Zoom call, in the in the Zoom call world we live in now, um, I think that people need to take it uh, much more seriously. And that's look, we we I created a lot of this MTO collection with that Zoom caller in mind, and, and to say that hey, just because you're not going into office anymore and you're not wearing that full suit tie and everything doesn't mean that for these Zoom calls you shouldn't wear a beautiful knitwear polo. Um, a blazer and a pair of trousers because at the end of the day, you're going to feel incredible because everyone, I, I have clients now who I went to go see a client the other day who um, is very, very well-to-do, um, you know, billionaire here, like, you know, $35 million apartment. Every, it, it's insane. And, and he lately, I've been seeing him during COVID and he's like always in track suits and all that stuff. And I went to go deliver some shirts to him the other day and he's like, you know, Angel, I, I threw on a suit and I haven't worn a suit in like, you know, six, seven months. He goes, I threw on a suit the other day. And he goes, I just forgot how, how much powerful you feel and how much amazing you feel with like just putting that all together yeah. and like this armor. 
Yeah, for and sure. It's it, he he starts to go. What he says next is like, I think we need to start like start looking at more suits because I just I want to like replenish some stuff because he might not be wearing suits every day now. And look, they'll get back to that because th- thankfully uh, I don't know when, but this pandemic's not gonna last forever. Um, people will get to a, a, a point where you know they're back to work and and life is using the word normal now is so tricky, but like is back to what, you know, it's different than what we're living now. Right. And so there has to be a sense of like, you know, self-care and and elegance in in everything you do, whether you're wearing a full suit and tie or you're just leaving your house and you're wearing a t-shirt and a blazer and a a pair of jeans and you're, you're putting it together with, 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 you know, a lot of intentionality. And, and that's what guys need more. They, they need more intentionality when they're, when they're getting dressed. I like, I like that. And I like that you, you sort of linked it to like the way you look as your brand. And I think back earlier in the episode, you were talking about like your brand and why you decided to build a brand and the, the consciousness of understanding what your brand represents. That's something people can take sort of on a personal level as well. Right. And then our last question is if you could give, one piece of style advice to your younger self, what would it be? One piece of style advice. Oh, easy. Less is more. Less is more. L- less like is that. more. I was so focused on now, granted, this is right after I said, I want to create, you know, a certain amount of evening wear pieces to hand down to my kid. But in general, um, I find myself wearing the, 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 the same things over and over again, because, you know, um, when I was young in the business, um, and I'm still young in the business, but when I was younger in the business, um, I wanted, my, my goal was like, how many like, cause I was going to all these like millionaires houses and billionaires houses and like, you know, you have to be careful. And I, and this is something that I want to give to a lot of the people out there and, and just clothiers in general is like, have a very clear understanding of who you are mm-hmm. and who you're, who you're supposed to walk you know, what, what type of like world you're supposed to walk in because, you know, the type of clients that we end up seeing, it's very skewing. It could be a very skewed image of what you think you should look like or what you should live like. And, and, you know, I was going to all these people's houses and how they drive and how they live. And, you know, you know, these closets that have like, you know, 60 jackets on one side and 150 suits on the other side. And I was like, I need, I need this. And I realized I'm like, no, I don't, I don't, I don't need that. I need to, I need to curate a, a, a wardrobe that is very sensible. It's very well thought out that I can wear things extremely often. One, it's extremely, it's much more responsible in terms of like fabric and, and wastage, but at the same time, it, it leaves your mind open to focus on creating and developing a world and developing uh, your client's wardrobe, as opposed to always focusing on, I need more jackets. I need more suits and all that stuff. So, I mean, I would, again, I would say, you know, less is more, less is more. Beautiful. Beautiful. Absolutely. And I think that's the the perfect note to end this on angel. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on and talk to us about you and your background as well as 18th amendment. Uh, I really appreciate it. It's been, it's been a fantastic conversation, man. Oh, I appreciate it, man. I, I, um, it was flattering that you guys invited me on. I appreciate the opportunity to, to sit with you guys. And although it was not, it, the video got cut short, you know, it, it just, this thing has been very pleasant and it's been, you know, it's been, a, it's been a fun time.
So real quick before you go, where can people find more about you, more about 18th Amendment, you know, Instagram, Facebook, what, what's the best location? Our website where our, has our MDO collection and, and what we are, what we do and everything is 18thamendment.com. That's all spelled out, 18thamendment.com. So on Instagram, we're 18th Amendment underscore. That's 18th underscore. I am Angel Ramos NYC on Instagram and 18thamendment.com is the website. Awesome. Guys, all those links will, will be in the show notes. Definitely check out what 18th Amendment is doing. It's, it's a beautiful approach to menswear artistically, creatively, and you know, especially like if you, you resonate with their looks, I think you're going to find all their collections fantastic. Yeah, I do definitely recommend uh, going to the website and seeing the inspiration page. Yeah, That's where all the Sunflower Man paintings uh, for Angel is in there as well. Yeah, definitely think, check out uh, that you guys sun, will definitely Sunflower like Man it. collaboration. It's absolutely fantastic. I appreciate it. Until next time, everyone, stay dapper. Stay dapper. Stay villainous. <laughs> <laughs>